Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 Playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced a signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hello, hello, Forefront family, and welcome to another episode of the Forefront podcast. I am Caroline, your host, and I'm joined by Alex, my co-host. Alex, how are you doing this lovely Monday? Exhausted, but doing well. I feel like we say this every time, but a lot going on. And I think for this time, it's a lot of indirectly affecting Web3 rather than directly in the Web3 space. So this episode, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about non-direct Web3 things, but it's all going to be tying in. I feel like we're getting into a lot of this type of stuff where a lot of the human aspects, the institutional aspects might not be directly Web3 and totally novel, but it's super important to talk about these things when thinking about building Web3. So we're bringing some of that in, talking a lot about social media today and some obvious big news that just broke today. I think people can think of it now when this episode comes out. We'll get into that a little bit here. Yes. I think it was very cool when we were doing our prep call yesterday and we're talking about how we feel like we're beginning to find our voice. We're beginning to find our niche. What is it that we're doing that is distinctive among all the other podcasts or content pieces that you could be listening to right now. And we hope that we're bringing to light the more human side of Web3, talking about our philosophy bombshell, talking about ethics, talking about morals, digging into, I would say, like the the underside of these more technological economic matters that are so often given the spotlight, but what really is underneath this and the threads of humanity. I'm just super stoked. It's been more than six months, I believe, at this point. I think April was exactly six months. And so it flew by, it really flew by. So I'm really grateful to be able to have this opportunity to jam with Alex and with you, the Forefront family. Before we get into it, I actually have a huge milestone to announce to the Forefront family. Anyone else who is listening, maybe your first episode ever listening to the pod and you're just now getting to know Forefront. My friends, I want to tell you about something called the Forefront Web3 Creator Residency. We just did a soft launch or soft announcement today, but the open call is right now active. If you are a subscriber to the Forefront weekly newsletter, if you scroll all the way down, you'll see a hidden little gift there where we're dropping the link to the application. Like I said, tomorrow we'll roll out the announcement in earnest, but essentially we're reimagining the artist residency for the 21st century metaverse. We are looking for creators on the frontier who are shaping the culture, aesthetics, and business of Web3. And we want to create a home for the incubation of new ideas, new art, new business models. And we define creators very broadly. So you can be a writer, you can be a visual artist, you can be working with NFTs, you can be a musician, you can be a developer, an entrepreneur. So whether you're emerging or established, if you're dreaming big and your world building in Web3, we'd love to hear from you. I will drop the application and our one pager in the show notes. And again, feel free if you folks out there know of anyone in your circles that would make a great candidate to apply, feel free to share it with them. Or of course, click on the link and apply yourself. It's going to be really exciting. We're planning to launch it a little bit after mid-May and planning for a cohort of about six creators 
having a virtual residency of one month with a creator grant, no strings attached, to help you seed and advance a new Web3 project or a new phase in an existing Web3 project. So I'm very super stoked about that and happy to break that news to our Forefront Pod family to begin with. So Alex, you mentioned social media being a, a huge theme in, in the show. Ease us into the blockbuster news that you just recently got uh, wind of, and then we'll circle back around. Yes. So the obvious big news that's all over Twitter now is that Elon is now the owner of Twitter. So Twitter accepted Elon's bid for between 44 and $46 billion, bought out at 54.20 per share. And I did not see this coming. <laughs> I thought this was one of Elon Musk's kind of stunts and trying to make a point, but he was very serious and he's given some hints on the things that he is excited to get working on. So some of this mm -hmm. is more of a functionality aspect, like an edit button, little things like that. And then there are others where it's like his vision is to turn Twitter into the de facto free speech platform. And you definitely have dissenting opinions where in their opinion, free speech is allowing fake news, bigoted extreme left onto the platform. It, it'll be interesting to see how it really shakes out because the idea of a total free speech platform is fantastic, but execution's a whole different ballgame. And there was something floating around from the old Reddit CEO. I'll have to dig up the link, actually. I just thought of it now mm. that I read mm -hmm. as this was becoming a possibility. This is way before it got announced. It was Sean Wang, who was, I think, Reddit CEO from like 2014 to 2015, so a short stint. And you could definitely tell he was jaded from his experience of running a social media company. <laughs> and the whole idea was that the vision of total free speech is totally misguided and the actual execution is a whole other ballgame. So yeah. I'll have to find a full link to that, like a respectful and coherent tirade. <laughs> it was definitely a warning to say, look, this is not as straightforward and easy as you think. A lot of times it's the human aspect that makes social media difficult, not the actual algorithm and, and shorting things out. Because if you create the algorithm, the algorithm is going to indiscriminately ban people depending on how you write the algorithm. When you write the mm -hmm. algorithm, human beings have bias to write that algorithm. And then people feel like the Twitter platform, the people behind Twitter are purposefully silencing certain opinions when in reality, you're just putting an algorithm together that's meant to automatically silence certain people because it's marked to spam and all this complexity that goes into it. If you go away with that altogether, who knows what it might devolve into, or maybe it ends up being exactly what he meant, where we're going to have to live with a lot of dissenting opinions on here and mm -hmm. have a better way to, to discern what is fact, what is fiction. And it m might be a good dose of living in an environment where you have dissenting opinions. I think the problem with this and anything that's uh, digital is people have total freedom to just leave and then go to somewhere else where they're they're satisfied with groupthink. You could just go to a whole other platform and say, oh, my people aren't the only people being represented. Therefore, I'm just going to go somewhere else where my people are fully represented. And this quote unquote free speech platform where everyone stays and everyone's dissenting might turn into you have just one group really hashing it out and you just have one opinion on there. That's the problem right now. And we're going to get into a deep dive on uh, an article that was written on The Atlantic later on. And it's a perfect deep dive example of how social media has just changed the way people think and act for the last 10 years, so to speak. I'm excited to get into that. And I think this is very timely with the announcement of Elon buying Twitter and his ambitious goal of making it a free speech platform. So we'll dig into maybe some of the pitfalls that he might not be thinking of, what's inherent in social media, and maybe some things for Elon to be 
thinking of and looking out for when trying to reach that ambitious goal. I'm excited to get into that piece. And can we just say something a little bit lighthearted? Because you and I often, at least (laughs) you and I have said many times that that there's something superhuman about the people that are in this space, Web3 and Mm. crypto, where they're doing a million different things. Dow, polyamory, I have a full-time job, I'm working in three DAOs. But how the heck does Elon Musk do what Elon Musk, how is it possible for him? Let's think about this. He's SpaceX. Tesla. And now in addition to everything else that he's doing, as if that wasn't difficult enough, exactly like you said, this tweet, and I I was actually a friend passed it to me. So I know exactly what tweet that you're talking about, where this guy is like, Elon, you don't want this. You don't want any (laughs) part of this. But like you said, it, it is more than ambitious. This is the ultimate gesture of fuck you money. And I can't believe that this is real life. I really I, I cannot know, believe. I know. Are we seeing this? Is this some HBO drama? But no, it's actually a real <laughs> life MTV. entrepreneur. Yes, MTV. This is real life entrepreneur taking on Twitter on top of everything else that he's doing. It's flabbergasting. I think in one of Elon's most lucid moments was he said, I don't think most people would want to be me. So I think in some way he realizes just that what he is doing is nearly impossible. And he definitely has his 80 to 120 hour weeks where he's doing nothing but this stuff. But then you see him shitposting memes and stuff. I'm like, how do you have all this time? And yet you're just toying with everyone on Twitter. He's an anomaly. That's it. And you got to hope that someone like that, probably one of the most qualified people to pull something like this off. But his attention is definitely split between different companies. And you have to think if he's focusing his attention on Twitter, what does that do to Tesla? What does that do to SpaceX? Exactly. His attention is full. So. Who knows? It it could go in a lot of different directions. I totally get both sides of people saying this is catastrophic and other people saying this is amazing. I I can't say I feel strongly one way or the other, but we will absolutely see. (laughs) And hopefully it's for everyone's benefit. But we'll get into some of the potential downfalls that might be inherent in all of social media might be difficult to overcome or just general things to really think about when it comes to social media, because it has had a monumental effect on the way the world works and the way people think over the last 10 years. And you have to think, is that something inherent in social media or can it be fixed? Yes. Interestingly, you have as ambitious and wide ranging as the impact of something like SpaceX or or Tesla. I think Twitter, this, like you said, this is the highest leverage thing that he could be tackling at this point, especially with the juncture that we're at as a society, as a nation, which we'll get into with the Atlantic piece. But lots to dig into. Let's get into the first segment, social tokens. We're going to go ahead and skip the tooling section. We are going to jump into new projects and I'm happy to announce a very cool new index product from the Index Coop. This is the NFT Index JPEG. So what is JPEG? So the JPEG NFT Index, Alex, provides broad exposure to blue chip and premier NFT collections through a single liquid token. So JPEG is composed of fungible versions of the NFTs, including fractional NFTs, NFT liquidity vaults, NFT curation DAOs, NFT currencies, and the JPEG also provides governance rights to vote on the token protocol. So what is the value prop here? Um, This is the way that the Index Coop has set it out in their announcement post in their blog. They say NFTs are a revolutionary cultural, artistic, and financial phenomenon. However, to date, it's been very difficult for everyday investors to act access NFTs. Due to the high degree of curation expertise, the low liquidity, the slow transaction times, and the high entry costs. So how does the JPEG index address these barriers? It provides a fully backed 
diversified collection of blue chip and premier NFT collections through a single index token. And all of the components of the JPEG are fully collateralized by and redeemable for fungible versions of NFTs and NFT collections. So here are some of the key advantages they're listing of holding JPEG over holding the individual NFTs. They include, of course, broader diversification, curation provided by the underlying protocols, lower capital requirements, higher entry and exit liquidity, very important, faster order fulfillment, reduced transaction fees, and the protocol governance rights that you get by holding the JPEG token. So what are the contents? What are exactly the NFT contents that the JPEG index includes? And here we have CryptoPunks, we have the Whale Vault, we have Unisox, we have the Doge NFT, we have pieces from the Jenny Dow, and also Ash. So wrapping up this quick segment, Alex, by giving you and the Forefront family some super secret alpha here. The NFT raffle program, this is an aspect of the rollout, and this is not super secret alpha, but I'll get into that. So in addition to the exposure that JPEG offers its index holders, IndexCoop has created a collector's collection. So this is a collection of NFTs. I believe there's only seven. Don't quote me on that. There's not a lot, but okay, maybe I'm getting it wrong. The floor price on OpenSea is currently 70 ETH. But anyway, Index will be airdropping 30 of the collector's NFT collection as part of its first of its kind liquidity mining campaign. So how does this work? By simply holding JPEG and ETH in your address, you will automatically be eligible to win a free NFT every day. So they're doing this airdrop every day for the next 27 days, one per day, and there's no need to stake. So every LP has an equal chance to win as long as you meet the minimum amount of 0.01 ETH. So it's like just 0.01 ETH, <laughs> right? That's all you need. Everyone has an equal chance and to ensure that uh, there there aren't this isn't you know any sort of funny stuff going on they're going to limit a maximum of 1 nft per address so my friends if you're interested in exploring this new index product from index coop and also perhaps winning one of these collectors nfts again the floor floor price is pretty pretty attractive at this point i would say look into it my friends so that is the new nft index product from index coop and now i want to go in very quickly alex have you heard of steppen i had not so steppen last roundup my friends you may remember that we jammed quite a bit on Axie Infinity. What is Stepin? S-T-E-P-N. Stepin is powered by the Solana blockchain and it's touted as the first move to earn mobile NFT game. So it's just like it sounds. So what's the gamification element here? Users buy NFT sneakers and then they move outdoors. They walk, they run, they jog. And in that action, they earn tokens and NFT rewards. So the sort of value prop of this project step in is that they want to inspire people to a healthier lifestyle, connect them to Web3 and combat climate change. I mean, wow, three three huge ambitions in one project. <laughs> so Steppen offers in-app gamification features, sneaker leveling, shoe minting, mystery boxes. They've built this full ecosystem vertical. So they have the in-app wallet, they have the swap, they have a marketplace. And something that I know that we talk about constantly on the show, and Alex is especially passionate about, they're really keen on making this entire ecosystem vertical, and especially the app, super intuitive to use. And they have the explicit mission of encouraging and onboarding non-crypto users through their 
game. And this is, I think it launched in December of 2021. And Stepin is going at a tremendous pace, Alex. So they started at 1500. Okay, so just 1500 daily active users in January. And three months later, they have more than 100k. Stepin has a game utility token, GST, governance token, GMT. And of course, they generate revenue via the sales of their NFT sneakers. And the game uses the proceeds from the sales of the NFTs to buy and then burn GMT, creating upward pressure on the price. And so keep this in mind, because this is an important part. We're going to get later into talking a little bit about the tokenomics and the dynamics of this economy that they're building. So Alex, Stepan now has a market capitalization of over $2 billion, and they announced <laughs> April 1st that their business generated a profit of $26 million through the sales of their sneakers alone in the first quarter in 2022. $26 million. And the Stepan Governance Token, or GMT, recently recorded a 45% spike just this past week. But actually, if you look at the past two months, the GMT surged by nearly 38,000%, 38,000% increase in less than two months. And so now everyone's looking at Stepin and they're saying, is this going to be the next Axie Infinity? And you might remember that we were talking about trouble in paradise <laughs> for Axie Infinity last roundup. So I was looking at a piece from AMB Crypto published a few days ago, Alex, April 24th, and they're looking at some of the numbers and they're thinking, okay, 20, 38,000% surge in less than two months looks quite attractive. But actually, if you look a little bit closer, you'll see that on March 9th, they said there was a total of 60,000 NFT trades recorded. But as of press time, the total NFT trades dropped down to less than 20,000. So they're pointing out that there's already a rapid decline. If you look on March 9th until April, this is a 70% decline in the total number of NFT trades. And then they also looked at the NFT trade volume. On March 9th, Stepin was doing 53 million in volume. And at the time of press, they had sunk down to almost 30 million. A lot of people are talking about, are these NFT games sustainable? Are they Ponzi schemes? And now there's these explicit parallels being drawn between Stepin and Axie Infinity. So I actually found this this piece that the Steppen team had actually authored, Alex, and I wanted to share it with you and, and the Forefront family. The title of this piece was, Are All Play-to-Earn Games a Ponzi? And it was very interesting because the Steppen team goes in and first they, they acknowledge that the current state of the play-to-earn game universe is completely dismal. That's a quote. They say it's rather dismal. There are a huge number of PTE games that are flooding the market. They're not actually games. They don't say it out, but these are essentially Ponzi schemes. And so they go through the article and first they say, here are the red flags that you need to be looking at. These are the red flags that signal that this is a Ponzi scheme. This is poorly designed token economics. They mention things, Alex, like limited use cases for the token, failure to provide burn mechanism, a poor distribution model that favors private investors over actual users, limited or no vesting periods for private investors. They also talk about the gameplay, Alex. They say if the end game is too easily reached, that's a big red flag. Yep. They say if the game is simply not fun to play, but they're hyping abnormally high returns, that's a big red flag. So how is Steppen different? And I actually think it's quite admirable that they're being so transparent about this. They're coming right out and, and tackling this. They're saying we're different. 
We have strong tokenomics. We know that the volatility of tokens is in play here. So we have developers that are super dedicated to actively monitoring the token in the these early days of the game's launch. So they say examples of good tokenomics, Alex, include sufficient token sinks to ensure that players need to keep spending the token yep. to sustain demand, strong burn mechanisms to keep the token supply controlled. And in regards to Steppen, they're pointing out that, look, we're sustaining token demand. We have have such mechanisms as repairing our sneakers after use, as leveling up the sneakers and getting new sorts of powers or energies, and then also minting new sneakers. They also talk about the power of community, and this is not surprising to me that they bring up the GameStop, the GameStop community, and they say, why did this succeed? It was because everyone wanted to join the movement of being a diamond-handed community. And they also brought up the uh, CrossFit, which makes sense. They're saying, look at CrossFit. This is the perfect example of people that are flowing into a community, having a shared sense of values and culture where people really pride themselves on belonging to this. So I think that's quite a strong analogy that they're drawing, especially because there is this move to earn element where there's that fitness aspect. And then they finally talk about utilizing bonding curves. And I don't know too much about this, but they are admitting that the idea of a bonding curve is pretty unproven in a play to earn game. But they're saying that it could be something that's quite promising. You can use this concept not only for tokens, but for also other items uh, within the game. So that is Steppen, my friend. I, I was quite fascinated by it. I know that you are, you come from, you're a very passionate yeah. gamer yourself. Tell me what your thoughts are, your impressions of Steppen. I have healthy skepticism always with stuff <laughs> like this, but it seems like they're trying things differently, which is great. It doesn't sound like they're just rehashing and forking Axie, which is there's a ton of those right now. So I always root for these things and see, are they going to, whether the project itself is a success or not, or it has successful elements that other people can learn from, that in my mind is a success long-term. So who knows if this project specifically survives or not, but it's trying things differently. And that's a win in my book. So we'll see what kind of ideas stem from this. Right away, I hear 26 million in revenue. And I, I don't know if that's one piece of the revenue and there might be more at a $2 billion market cap. That's quite a <laughs> valuation compared to revenue. Yes. So I, I definitely, I mean, you saw the article, it's 34,000% increase. It's hard not to see it being overvalued right now. So I guarantee there will be some kind of dip afterwards, but that doesn't mean that it's a Ponzi, right? That this is the market the mania there, there's nothing really that team can do unless they're encouraging that kind of behavior, which I have no idea if they are. But the, the market is going to go crazy with that stuff. It will resettle. And yeah, we'll have to look out for where it settles. And is it more conducive to the value that it's actually adding here versus just straight speculative mania? Some of the things that I do like hearing is in the tokenomics piece, having an outflows mechanism. So I'm not super familiar with Axie Infinity. I'd mentioned this before. A lot of the games just seem like cheap mobile games and I've never been into those. And I got that feel with Axie Infinity. So I just haven't gotten into it, but that's such an important piece of, I'm thinking like MMORPGs, which I think are some of the largest scale, most complex type of economies because they're multiplayer and people will dip thousands of hours into those games. So in those mechanics, you'll have things where it's through playing the game, you'll have the in-game currency. So this is web two, right? Just using as an analogy, playing the game, you'll have a way to generate currency from the world, whether you're killing monsters, whether you're doing quests, whatever. Money will basically be generated from the world. If you don't have an outflow for money to be spent and be taken out of the economy, 
you're just going to have runaway inflation. That's pretty basic monetary policy there. So the way that they're thinking about that to say, great, naturally, we're going to have inflows where people are earning their tokens by moving in some way, the gamification, whatever. And if they're thinking intelligently about what are the outflows that we can develop here so that inflation at the very least is not runaway, or maybe it's I doubt it would end up being deflationary, but inflation would be at a reasonable level. Now you can have a little bit more of a sustainable economy and not just have a runaway token supply. I I don't know also if they're going to have a cap on the tokenomics or if it's going to be more of we're going to be aim for 3% inflation per year based on the inflows and the outflows. And to be honest, that's have to be algorithmic based on how many players are playing. If there's a mass amount of players, well, there's going to be a massive inflow of tokens being generated. Okay, how can you set up a proportional outflow so that the tokens come out of the economy and there isn't runaway inflation? EVE Online is a really well-known uh, typical Web2 game, and they've actually hired economists full-time to help oversee that economy. And it's a very player-driven economy, but that's how complex this gets is some, someone sitting there and architecting. Have we designed an incentive structure system similar to the DAO space, right? That is not going to destroy the economy and is going to encourage people to do the things that we want to encourage them to do. So that's always the biggest piece here where I think with play to earn games, or in this case, move to earn games, where we will see if people try and find loopholes, which they will obviously try to find and say, how can I game the system? How can I just generate a ludicrous amount of these tokens that you have to think through in the tokenomics that you're not creating those opportunities for people to game the system? And you set up the incentives to say, people, the most advantageous way for people to behave is the way we want them to behave based on the incentive structure that we've set up. And that's really difficult to do. So again, even if this project specifically fails, it sounds like they're doing things differently. They're shaking things up. They're advancing the whole play to earn space and not just doing a rehash of the same thing and driving the token price up, cashing out, whatever. There's plenty of those after you see big success. So maybe this ends up being the next wave of play-to-earn games, or maybe it's just a learning lesson for other play-to-earn games to take elements from that, and then you have the next Axie Infinity taking the, the successes that this project develops. So regardless, it's something to watch closely, whether it comes out on top or it's just a learning lesson in itself. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're putting themselves out there specifically as wanting to onboard folks that are new to crypto, but at this floor price. I read somewhere that the ordinary sneaker, the ordinary NFT sneakers, I think the floor price is like 1200 minimum 1200 And then they just recently did a partnership, a limited edition of Stepin and Asics NFT sneakers. And those mm. launched on the Binance NFT marketplace earlier this month. And those have done so far 13 million. I think they launched like mid-April. And since that time, the Asics NFTs have done about 13 million in sales volume. And the floor price there is 7K. So again, it's just like with Axie, like you need three of the three of the little creatures to actually even play. And this is why you had that you had the sort of scholarship programs that you and I were looking into. But here you're looking at NFTs, the price of entry is anywhere from 1200 to 7k that just isn't realistic for the vast majority of mortals. So we'll see how this goes. We remember that Axie also had a tremendous explosion in price and value before it eventually began dropping. So we'll see. Yeah, that's definitely a theme I'm seeing with a lot of play to earn games right now is the barrier to entry is so high. I just, yeah, I'm not at the point to take bets where I'm like, I'm going to make a $10,000 bet on one specific Mm -mm, game that could just die in a second. It has (laughs) to be more accessible. You have to be thinking of, 
I know it's skeuomorphic, but just think to the normal games here. You have a box price of $60 max. That's like a triple, triple A game. And then you might have a subscription price if you're going to pay. That's 10, 15 bucks a month. And there's a great sustainable price there, right? So you have to think what's the Web3 version of that? certainly isn't 7k entry fee. And I know Mm -hmm. people are testing this out and it's going the way of the automobile where it's really only available to the rich or people willing to throw a ton of money at this and and experiment with it. And over time, it'll get cheaper and cheaper. That's my hope at least. But uh, yeah, at the stage it's at right now, it's a playing ground, it's experimentation. And I encourage the experimentation to a certain degree not to take advantage of people. It's just, it's so early for play to earn and it, it might not be something that people determine is is the way that they want to go. I think there is a role for NFTs. I think there's a role for tokens to a certain extent in games, but I totally get the sentiment of, look, a lot of people play games to escape reality, not to blend reality with games. I totally get that. And the more you blend reality with games, the more gaming is going to feel like a job and the less enticing it's going to it's going to feel. I totally get that feel. So I think there will always be a camp of people who do not want to have the kind of play to earn aspects in games. And then there's going to be a whole new generation that is all about that. So I don't think it will replace traditional gaming. It might have its little niche and time will tell if it's designing it in the right way, if it will, how big that niche will be. Beautiful. So Alex, that's it for our social token segment. Why don't you lead us into DAOs? Yes. So we're going to kick off with an announcement from Gnosis that they're actually going to spin Gnosis Safe off of the Gnosis DAO. So the story is really twofold. It was one, it's Gnosis is Gnosis Safe is definitely critical infrastructure at this point. And I know we joke that there's more DAO tools than there are DAOs, but Gnosis Safe is absolutely one that has stood the test of time. I think it has over $70 billion worth of assets in different safes. Was that like at 110 at the height of the bull market? So it has a significant amount of value captured in there. It seems to be the de facto multi sig wallet that people are using. And the other, I think the other piece of this story is to start, start talking about why would you even spin off a successful project like that from the normal DAO? And this is a concept that we talked about before where there's probably going to be this. Cambrian explosion of mergers and splitting off of reverse mergers, really, where you have DAOs finding their place and they're either coming together and becoming a single entity or it's overlapped in a way where they're very interconnected or they're splitting off and the reasons behind this. So I want to go into both of those. So I'll just read off of this this Twitter thread here that's announcing it. First off, they had 900 community members vote in Gnosis DAO on this proposal, which is the biggest in history that Gnosis has had. So it was a really big turnout. And I know, again, this has been something where governance is traditionally something that's difficult to get a turnout on. And this was a big decision and their community really showed up. So that's really good sign for the health of the Gnosis community here, first and foremost. So here were the three main things that were decided in this spinoff. So first is Gnosis Safe is going to spin out of Gnosis. That's obviously priority number one. Number two, a newly founded nonprofit foundation will safeguard strategic assets until the project is sufficiently decentralized. So that's good to hear that they have a plan and know that, hey, we're not decentralized yet, but we're getting there and we have a plan to go towards progressive decentralization. I think that's a very common theme that we're seeing here is starting centralized, going decentralized, It's important you have a plan there to eventually get decentralized and not get stuck in that comfortable, safe, fast, centralized way of doing things. 
And then lastly, a safe token will be launched to govern the project and support decentralization. So that's the mechanism to go to decentralization. So why are they going to be doing the spinoff? Gnosis Safe has been a project within the Gnosis family for a long time. And what became clear to that community is that scaling many different projects within Gnosis became increasingly more difficult uh, as probably the most important resource was missing, which is focus. And I think a lot of DAOs can vibe with this. This is, and we'll get more into this in my next piece here on what's the balance between focus and this kind of uh, divergent way of going about things and, and stumbling upon things rather than a traditional company, which is just like narrow focus on one singular goal and objective. So we'll get into that a little bit more. But in this case, when you have limited resources in a DAO, yes, you can't have multiple different people working on multiple different things all at once and see success. There's this kind of hybrid of you need focus at the individual level and maybe at the DAO level, you're working on a ton of different things. So what Gnosis DAO found out is with the resources that they had and the number of projects that they had, it wasn't sustainable to have the resources they had working on all these different projects, including Gnosis Safe. And Gnosis Safe has, again, demonstrated itself as being a very successful project. So they want to give it the focus that it deserves. And they felt that the best way to do this was to spin it off into its own thing and have a team dedicated to that thing rather than a team that is half in on that and half in on all these other projects. So that was their reasoning for this. What does this look like? With the merge of XDAI chain, Gnosis has a clear new mission as a project to establish the new Gnosis chain as the canary chain for Ethereum. And with that newfound focus, it became clear that spinning out Gnosis Safe was a win-win for both projects. So just giving more context along those lines. Yeah, I think there's a few learning lessons here where it's still early. They made this decision to spin it out and say, look, we want to have more narrow focus on Gnosis Safe. It's been a successful project. And we don't want this other goal of Gnosis DAO to dilute the success that we've had there and take attention away from the continued success of that project. So they wanted to spin that out. And it's a good thing for other DAOs to be thinking about where we'll, we'll get into this in the next segment here, but DAOs naturally are working on a bunch of different things and really finding out what's their identity. And you have to try out a bunch of different things to see what are we going to be stumbling on? And you cannot have multiple people working on so many different projects that their attention is split. This is a good segue into the next section, which is the concept of DAOs as a novelty search engine. And it's this general idea, and I'll do a verbal co comparison chart between traditional companies and then DAOs. So the general idea here is that companies are better at convergent thinking, DAOs are better at divergent thinking. So let's explain both of those. Companies with convergent thinking. It's easier. And we see this with protocols, right? Even layer ones, they're more centralized, single leader, very tight core team versus a very decentralized, slow to, to develop type of environment. You might think of an Ethereum versus a Solana in that way. So let's think of companies being better at convergent thinking. They have a singular goal, very clear, non-enigmatic. You're playing in a very clear ecosystem to say, we're trying to achieve this one singular thing. Easier and quicker to have that one particular leader. You have a very strict hierarchy involved within the company, and you have people with very specific roles all working towards that singular goal. And companies, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. And with companies, you can work very effectively if you have that very clear goal. And that's why you see with companies, you have yearly visions, you have yearly goals, you have quarterly goals, and you're just saying, how am I tracking towards these different goals? In contrast to that, what this article is stating, and again, this is not just determined as true, this is the idea here, 
is that DAOs are better at divergent thinking. So think of the contrast of what I just described with companies. Divergent thinking is you're playing in a very foggy or muddied environment. You don't know exactly which way to go. Think of goals in the sense of like improving GDP or improving world happiness. Those are very enigmatic goals and it's unclear in exactly what you would do to achieve that kind of lofty goal. So the idea is that DAOs are more better suited for goals like that that are in an unclear playing area where you can have a bunch of different teams still with certain hierarchies involved in those different teams, all specializing on different projects and different focuses. And what you end up doing is having this small local intelligence in each one of these different subsections within the DAO and narrow focus and a small team. And the aggregate of all of those different individuals, all of those different small groups that have little hierarchies and maybe local knowledge and, lo- and smaller focus, when you aggregate all of that, you get this collective wisdom that you gather over time. And if you're good as a DAO on sharing those major findings between the different groups, what you end up doing is creating, again, this kind of collective wisdom that gets you closer to reaching a goal as lofty and as enigmatic as how do I increase happiness globally? That's a very unclear goal. And you can't say, okay, we have that goal, then that means we need to do XYZ things. And then we need to have certain KPIs that we need to hit on XYZ things. No, what you're doing is saying, all right, world happiness, let's have a bunch of different groups that are structured and they're going to focus with their own certain level of expertise. They're going to try and make baby steps towards this goal, maybe do certain research. And when each one of those different groups are interacting individually and then coming back and having a maybe like a leader, so to speak, that is sharing the major findings that they have, you accrue this knowledge at the DAO level over time, even though at the individual level, no individual person really has all of that knowledge all to themselves because they all have this local knowledge, this local expertise that they've developed by focusing narrowly on this one particular problem that's trying to work towards that certain goal. And the idea that this article brings together is that it's almost some stepping stones in a foggy lake. And the foggy lake is you really can't see far ahead of you, but you might be able to say, all right, there's one stepping stone here and I'm going to lay that stepping stone down And as I work within that environment, then I might put another stepping stone down in this direction. And then maybe eventually what you end up doing is putting stepping stones in a way where you cross that lake, you get to the other side. That's what DAOs are better at is that kind of enigmatic divergent thinking and working towards something very lofty. And I think that's something that Gnosis started to identify where they're like, look, we have a certain limited number of resources. We have a ton of projects that we want to work on, but we found one particular project that we've done really well at, and we want to make sure we have the resources to support that specific project. So we're going to spin that off. We're going to make sure that continues to see success. And we're going to use the resources that we have now to continue to experiment and continue to say, like, where in this ecosystem can we continue to advance and try to experiment? And that takes a totally different type of thinking, totally different type of structure. And that, and in my opinion, is why they might have separated those few different things. So that's generally speaking what this article puts together. It is dense. I highly recommend reading through it and maybe even reading through it a few different times. It's enlightening to see like, we might be thinking about DAO the wrong way. We might be thinking of DAOs as a replacement for companies where it's maybe DAOs coexist with companies and they're just, they're a better coordination mechanism to inherently different problems. 
because companies are optimized for that singular focus, that very clear goal type of environment. And you have DAOs with things like public goods or with increasing GDP or increasing global happiness, those examples that I just gave, where traditionally we've not been very good at it because we don't have a way to have this global coordination game. And the idea here is that you have this soft alignment between everyone in a DAO by having a token that everyone owns. And even though you have these different, almost siloed groups within a DAO, all working on different problems individually, and yes, you're bringing that knowledge back together, but really those teams are working individually. The thing that's tying those teams together is that token. And that's the idea here is you have this collection of almost mini companies that in my opinion, would stay below the Dunbar number of 150, where it's easier to collaborate with them. And the DAO is a collection of those different little groups. And the DAO is what's benefiting from the collective knowledge of all those individual groups that have that local and specific knowledge and expertise on whatever whatever it is that they're working on. Maybe another perspective, what you just said about the DAOs as a collection of little teams that fall below the Dunbar limit. I was also thinking that it would be also quite interesting or powerful to conceive of DAOs as like the meta framework. If you imagine our economy right now, we have companies the traditional companies of of various sizes. And within them, they don't necessarily, quote unquote, have to be, I I know that the article from what you were explaining are talking about general trends. So they couldn't really dig in. But for instance, weren't we talking about this during the prep call about Google when they first launched, they had to find their footing. They had to focus on one thing. They had to focus on the search engine. And then once they got their footing, they got the momentum, they got the capital, they got the resources. Now there's literally nothing that they're not doing. They're, They're doing so many different things. So I I think this idea that, quote unquote, the traditional company, you can just put it into a bucket as, oh, convergence and centralization. Like, I don't, I think that's like a generalization that isn't really helpful because when you have these companies that I, again, many, uh, we can go back and forth about the faults of Google, but they've accomplished much and they are doing so much. They're doing so much that it's impossible. Like you, just like you said, it's impossible for any one person or team or even the executive team to understand at a very deep level what the entire company is doing. So even in a quote unquote traditional company, you have strains, you have echoes of decentralization, of distribution. I agree. Yeah. So I think that it's not and I'm not criticizing the article, but I'm just saying a more fruitful perspective is to ask ourselves, what would it look like if because the company, as you have said many times in our jam sessions, where the DAOs are, are struggling with questions that are not new. So there's no question, why do we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? We have this sort of company structure. We know that there are things that are unjust about it. And so putting that aside, though, there, there are clearly companies like Apple or Google that have been able to do amazing things and have these sort of trends of decentralization and distribution and local knowledge empowering like collective sense making. That's already happening happening. So I think the powerful way to look at this is what if the economy was made up, were made up of these, again, discrete entities of production, and they are companies, but then you zoom out and you see the relationship of all these companies as relative to what a DAO would look like. So you still have the individual discrete 
entities that are companies and that in and of themselves, I think, Alex, and maybe it's just I'm being biased here because this is like the sort of the foundational sort of beacon that we sent up for season two for Forefront. But I think every single entity and organization combines is a polarity of centralization and decentralization, is a, is a combination of convergence and divergence. So I don't think that you can say companies are just one way and DAOs are just one way. But I, what I would really love to dig into with the space is that we look at the various discrete entities as companies, we can call them, we can call them DAOs, but we realize that if you zoom out and you begin to talk about how these discrete entities relate to one another, we could be in relation to one another as smaller Dunbar teams would be in relation to the way that we currently conceive of a DAO. The the sort of story that I keep bringing up in Peter Thiel's book, what was the title of his book? From Zero to One? Is that the name yeah, of the book? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's writing about what happened in terms of him and his Elon Musk before they actually joined forces and formed PayPal. They were incredibly aggressive, combative. He even told the story about one of the engineers speculating, could, could we leave a bomb on their doorstep? Their offices <laughs> were close to one another. They were all out fighting with one another. And then they just had this epiphany that, wait a minute, we could just join forces. And that was the beginning of a huge shift in the world with PayPal coming into being. So if you can imagine like those two separate companies putting away this sort of ethos of competition and saying, wait a minute, but what if we zoom out and look at our relationship as like a meta DAO? Okay, I'm doing something. I'm clearly doing something in payments. You're also doing something in payments. Why don't we join forces? Why don't we merge? Why don't we have some sort of strategic alliance instead of competition? And Does then you have sense? token owning. Owning yeah. different tokens of that native DAO is a way to have good faith and shared incentives to have the success of both entities. Yeah, I had some similar thoughts when I was reading this because you got to have to think of things like incubators in normal companies. Isn't that essentially what that is trying to accomplish is you're taking the company resources and you're saying, here's a small team, you go off and you try and find new ways for the company to expand. Or you have companies that say, hey, I think you were just talking about this 3M was one example where 20% of the employees time is allocated to doing yes. whatever it is that they whatever want. They want. And you kind of aspects in different ways, right? You have everyone has 20% of their time to focus on different things rather than different groups dedicated to figuring out something novel to work towards. So it's a different execution, but the idea is still there in that you have those aspects of divergent kind of thinking within companies. The question here is that are companies the best structure to actually work towards divergent thinking, or can DAOs be uniquely positioned to work towards this kind of global level, this large way of approaching divergent thinking, where if you have lots of different groups where the sole purpose is to say, we're working towards this one enigmatic goal, and we have a bunch of different teams working in different ways to reach that goal, and they're all have a shared interest by sharing that token. It's a thought experiment, um, definitely not a very tactical <laughs> article here, but. I feel like we cover a lot of these things where it's helpful to think about things in different perspectives and take it with a grain of salt, right? With the DAO space right now, no one knows what they're talking about. We're all trying to figure it out. And these are different ideas to say, hey, what if we thought about it this way? What if we thought about it this way? It might be more helpful to say, okay, that's the way I want to run this different DAO. Let's try it out. And you could go all in on the kind of divergent thinking, or you could say, look, DAO is just a more flat hierarchy and I see it as a replacement of a company. That's totally fine too. And DAOs are testing in different in those two different ways. I, I think it's a great piece to read through and come up with your own opinion. I, I'm certainly not coming up here saying you need to think about it a certain way. I try to limit my own opinion as much as I can. I naturally bring it in, but th there's some good points in here and a certain way to think. Difference between 
convergent and divergent, and maybe some ideas for the way that you develop the DAO and maybe spin off some different subgroups within the DAO that have narrow focuses and different divisions that all work towards something like that, like an enigmatic goal that's not very clear on how you might solve for that problem. So really good piece, in my opinion. Thank you, Alex. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our philosophy bombshell. So as promised, we're circling back around to the the topic of social media, but by way of this Atlantic piece was published earlier in April. And let's dig into this. I want to give some highlights here before we jam about it a bit. But Jonathan Haidt begins this piece by talking about the Tower of, of Babel. So this was the biblical story. And he says this quote I'm pulling out now, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America. America in the 2010s and for the fractured country that we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong. Very suddenly, we are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. So what happened? What led us to this point? The narrative that the author develops is that he brings it back to the early internet of the 1990s. It seemed like the chat rooms, the message boards, email, it was all going to be this sort of positive sum, techno-democratic optimism. It was going to be a huge boon for democracy. It didn't seem like there was going to be any downside to this. Uh, And then he gets into talking about what is it that actually holds together large, diverse and secular democracies like the United States. So he says three things that social scientists have identified, three major forces that are necessary. Social capital, extensive social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions, and shared stories. And then he goes into how social media has completely decimated all of these things. So if you look at the first stage, he says social media is shifting us away. The first stage of this transformation, social media is slowly shifting us away from this merely technological shift in accelerating the the speed of communication, changing the qualitative mode of communication. And it'd be Facebook pre-2009, he said, pre the development of the like button It was just about communicating. It was about maintaining social ties. But in 2009, there was this huge transformation and Facebook offered their users a way to publicly like posts with the click of a button. This was the same year he said that Twitter introduced something even more powerful, the retweet button, which allowed us to publicly endorse a post while also sharing it with our followers. And this quickly became like the design epicenter of both platforms. But what Hate says that it's quite interesting, Alex, it says that this marked a shift, again, away from merely technological advances in communicating to something that was more like performative signaling. And when I read this, and I don't actually, if he, if he used the word signaling, that's more my phrase, but he did say it became more of a matter of performance. It was about managing our personal brand. I think he did actually say that in the article. So what comes to mind here for me, Alex, is that when you move away from communicating to something that's more like a performative signaling, then you're falling into this very slippery slope of egoism. You're now communicating to make a point, to validate yourself, to win, to come out on top. And it's no longer about communicating for the sake of communicating. And and maybe this is like an obvious point, but I just, I wanted to really emphasize that this set the stage, the liking, the retweet button, it set the stage for this intensification of viral dynamics. Because as we know, after the like button was introduced, Facebook began to say, oh my gosh, we have data. We have data now about what quote unquote engages our users. And so they developed algorithms that were 
no longer just showing you what your friends and family were posting to the network, but now it was algorithms that were serving up users the content that was most likely to generate a specific engagement, a like, a retweet a share. And of course, we know, we know probably from our personal experience, and many of you are probably familiar with the research that has shown that the posts that actually trigger um, the emotions of anger and fear and outrage, especially at uh, groups that you have othered, are the ones that are most likely to be shared. And of course, we can sense this when we're watching the news, when we're rolling through our Twitter feed, we can sense the things that like agitate us or that provoke us enough so that we will take action to comment or to share. And so hate is saying that as someone who is a social psychologist who studies emotion and morality and politics, he saw this as a very slow train wreck. He saw that the newly tweaked platforms were, quote, almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves. And then he goes into this part that I thought was quite fascinating. He described James Madison in drafting the U.S. Constitution as an excellent social psychologist. He said the framers were excellent social psychologists. They knew that democracy had a profound weakness at its core because it depended on the collective judgment of the people. But it was precisely that the collective judgment, even though it was the source and the strength of democracy, it was also vulnerable to being overcome and being overruled by the passions, by mob dynamics, right? And so the framers had to design in mechanisms to purposely slow things down. He says to cool the passions, to require compromise, and this sort of enhancement of virality, the sort of designing of the social media platforms to optimize virality was the unbundling of this concept of free speech. Now, suddenly everything moves lightning fast. Everything can fan the flames of the passions. Everything can fan the flames of the mob dynamics. He goes on and he says something very interesting, Alex. He, he talks about this book, The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce the name, R-A-U-C-H. But in this book, he's describing why Western societies have come to develop themselves to such a pinnacle of like intellectual power. They essentially developed what he called an epistemic operating system, right? So if you look at the legal system, if you look at common law, if you look at jurisprudence, if you look at newspapers and journalism, if you look at the scientific method and research universities. The Western societies have essentially created like an operating system that is optimized for generating relatively trustworthy knowledge from human beings that are biased and cognitively flawed. And he says that everything rests on the legitimacy and the integrity of these institutions, but they begin to fall and fail at the foundations when people become afraid to dissent. So if you think about the framework of English law, it is Precisely that you have two advocates that are quote unquote on either side of the aisle that are battling one another and trying to present their case to an impartial judge or jury. It just wouldn't work if the one side was afraid to dissent, if the one side was afraid to advocate strongly and have a highly opinionated point of view. It just it would fall apart. So he is essentially saying the phenomenon of social media, the phenomenon of the the optimization of viral dynamics, it made us afraid to be darted 
darted. He uses that image of being hit by a dart. He made us afraid of being darted, of being called out because suddenly, because of these viral dynamics, everything could be on the line. He brings up stories of people that were fired, people that were harassed, people that suffered great damage and harm from being called out on social media. So I think I would love to hear what you took from this. But I think one of the most interesting things that came up in our prep call yesterday, Alex, was this idea of Jonathan Rausch's idea of an epistemic operating system and the question of, well, how do you design something like this that proceeds from decentralization? Because when you think about the research university, when you think about a court of law, clearly, again, the it's not simple. You can't just can't say that, oh, these are centralized institutions. That's not true. They're centralized from a particular point of view, but from other particular points of view, it's completely decentralized. But how do we in this day and age reconstruct an epistemic operating system with the values of decentralization that are living in Web3? I think that's a very deep question that I'm obsessed with right now. But Alex, what are your thoughts coming out of this, reading this article? Oh, so many. I think the other piece here you mentioned was James Madison talking about the human desire for factions, which I mm. so agree on. It's so apparent. I mean, everyone wants the battle of good versus evil. Everyone wants something like Star Wars. It's good and evil. <laughs> or Harry Potter, there's good and evil. Or my team versus your team. My team's obviously the good one. Everyone thinks they're the good guys. That's the big difference here. Everyone thinks they're the good guys. And and people want that. This is the problem with our environment evolving way, way faster than the human brain. We had mentioned this yesterday. The human brain is designed to survive, not to thrive. It is designed to survive. And you have the lizard brain that ends up firing on social media because social media is being designed in a way that taps into that lizard brain and says, great, we're going to introduce the like button, the share button, and that's going to tap into that lizard brain that says, I want an opinion here. I run on fear. I run on uncertainty. I run on anger. I run on sadness. And it's the survival part of the brain. And this is when you get these kind of emotionally charged articles flying all over the place. You have mainstream media companies now only incentivized to release sensationalized articles because that's what gets clicks. That's what gets shares. That's what gets likes. And this is the exact outcome of designing a system that's poorly thought out. And some part of me feels bad. Some part of me says, shame on you for the people who are designing things like the like button, like the retweet button. You have a lot of power at your disposal. You are running a platform that now, Facebook, for example, half of the world is on. And if you're going to design a system, you have to be thinking through the incentive structures that you're creating. This is why it's so important for people to study behavioral economics and incentive structures, game theory, things like that, because you have to be aware of what the unintended consequences are. And we've seen this in protocols all the time where they're saying, here's the tokenomics, here's what we want people to do. And then as soon as it gets released, someone has thought of immediately of a loophole and then they totally gain the system and it looks rare. This is a perfect example. People are just wash trading in order to, to farm tokens, right? The, the like retweet buttons are similar story where people thought, oh, this is a great idea because sunshine and rainbows, people are just going to share what, what they value and then they're going to find more other people who share the same values as them. What they didn't think through is, all right, what is this going to incentivize people to? It's going to incentivize people to share the things that are triggering our lizard brain, which is fear, uncertainty, doubt anger, sadness, all of those things, because those are the things that people latch their attention onto. 
if you'd studied history, that's a conclusion that you could have come to and thought, maybe this is opening a can of worms. Maybe this is opening Pandora's box, and we don't necessarily want to do that. And you have to wonder how much of that was going through their head when they were releasing this, or if they're only trying to see the positive side of it. And the reality is, as soon as one entity does it, the next one does. I know there's this back and forth between Facebook and Twitter. One released the like button, one released retweet, and then the other one released share. And it's Pandora's box. Once it's opened, you can't close it. And what ends up happening is it's the degradation of logical arguments because now emotions, whoever cares the most, whoever screams the loudest, wins. And now you just have two sides, good and evil, or should I say good and good, depending on who you're asking. Both sides think they're good. Yelling at each other, saying you're evil. And there's just, there's no logical basis. And it can get incredibly frustrating when you're on social media and you see someone post something that's just so poorly researched, clearly, and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's so wrong. I want to call this person out. And you snap out of it, you take a step back. You're like, this is exactly what this person wants me to do. (laughs) I'm falling for that trap. They want this emotionally charged thing. They know it's going to get under people's skin. And what they're going to do is rally behind their team and start to fight whatever other team ends up shouting the loudest back at them. And this is the sad state of social media. This is the, the logical conclusion of social media when you design an incentive structure like that. It's so important for people in the Web3 space to be studying these incentive structures and say, this is the implication here. You're not creating companies here in Web3. You're creating protocols. These protocols are meant to survive way after. They should be. They should be surviving way after the involvement of the initial core team. And the whole way that's going to work is if you're designing a very well thought out, thoughtful incentive structure that's going to have longevity. And if you have these glaring gaps, and it's easier said than done, right? This is way easier said than done. But you can't take the fail fast approach in the protocol space when you're releasing something. And it could die immediately because you just didn't foresee this kind of glaring hole in the incentive structure. Someone ends up gaming the system and takes a big portion of the tokens. Everyone thinks it's unfair and people are just going to move on to the next chain. And I think we're at a stage right now, a Cambrian explosion of all these different protocols where People are trying to be faster than they are trying to be doing things the right way. And I think this comes back to an ethos compared to, like I mentioned before, an Ethereum versus something like a Solana. I don't necessarily want to take sides here, but you have people who are saying, I want fast. I want want fast development. I want fast transactions. I want fast finality, all that stuff versus it's really slow, but it's long-term, it's systemic. So you have these two camps here, and it's so important for people in Web3 to, to make sure that they're thinking through these and really check their principles and say, what are you trying to build here? Are you trying to build the next $5 billion market cap type of protocol? Or are you trying to build something that lasts way after, after your involvement? You have to have a gut check there and say, am I designing something that can live beyond uh, human intervention and mainly have people that are just doing upkeep and, and governance changes, right? But do you have to be involved here? Are there any systemic risks to this protocol? Am I designing something that's going to have unintended consequences? That's way more difficult. It's way more challenging and easier said than done, but that's the way that we have to be thinking. And this social media over the last 10 years is such a good playing ground to study because this is exactly what happened. It seems like people are coming from good intentions and that just terrible outcomes coming from that. If I go one layer deeper and then I'll I'll turn it back over to you, I think there's an underlying piece here where cheap, high dopamine activities are what's most detrimental. So there's this whole other layer. There's the social layer, right? The retweet, the like button, all that stuff. 
But then I think there's this other layer of just, again, tapping into the survive brain, not the thrive brain, where your brain is saying, I'm trying to get dopamine. If you want to take it back to hunter-gatherer times, high dopamine is, I want to eat meat. Okay. And that's a very long-term dragged out type of activity. You're going to go down, you're going to track this animal. You're going to run it down for 15, 20 miles till it drops to exhaustion. And then you're going to take that animal and you're going to cook it and you're going to, you're going to eat it. There's a long amount of time (laughs) between your brain saying, this is a high dopamine activity. I want to eat meat and you actually getting the reward. That's the survive brain. Because your brain is saying that is something you should be working very hard at. You should really, truly be trying to make that happen. Again, our environment is involved way faster than our brains. We're still have, we still have a survive brain. And yet the key to human happiness is to thrive, which inherently takes a different mindset. Now you have things like social media that have very cheap, high dopamine. You can pull out your phone. You can say, I want to click that like button. Oh, you have notifications. These tools are designed to, to be these little dopamine hits. And you can tell that you're starting to get addicted when you're opening the app. You're like, what am I doing? I'm wasting time. You close it. And then you just inherently habitually open that same app back open. It's the most demoralizing thing. And I've gone through these themes. Like after reading this article, I just deleted all my social media. I was like, okay, yep. It's controlling me. I know it's controlling me and I'll come back to it. I'll probably come back to it, but it's so important to do these little detoxes and know that there's this whole other piece, right? What social media can be detrimental to if you're in the Web3 space, you might be thinking you're doing research on Twitter, but if you're sitting there scrolling and mindlessly just going through and liking and retweeting, that's not research. That's not necessarily great use of time. So we have to gut check ourselves and say, are we working, is social media working for us or are we working for social media? And I think for a lot of us, it's the latter, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to bring up, this was very interesting to me, and it made sense because like you said, when I observed myself on social media, I had this intuitive knowing of something that the author Jonathan Haidt went into. But I don't know if you remember in the sort of middle of the piece, he's talking about this study that had found that the it was the extremes of the political spectrum, the people on the far, far most and the people on the far, far most left that are the loudest that are the most visible and the loudest. And it's the exhausted majority in the middle, he called it, the exhausted majority in the middle that are drowned out, that are just silent because they're just exhausted by it or because it's the extremes of either side of opinions is the agitated, virulent, virulently stated sort of social media posts that, again, because they're evoking these negative emotions are attracting the most attention, whether positive or negative. So I thought one of the most, one of the most insidious impacts of social media is that it can distort your picture of reality. Because sometimes I do find myself scrolling through the feed and thinking to myself, oh my God, what does the world come to? So it was very, it was a nice reminder to read this piece, Alex, and to remember that, yes, because I, just like you said, recounted this anecdote of like being agitated by something and and getting ready to fire off a tweet and then going, wait a minute, that's what they want me to do. I can't tell you how many times I've felt that rising swell of anger or frustration. I was like, I'm about ready to just tweet something off. And then I'm like, no, no, it's not because I, I actually believe that you have to be in a certain state of mind in order for you to hear one another, right? So this is, and everyone has this experience. This is why in, in a court of law, you don't have the, the lawyers screaming at each other and, and throwing books that would be completely out of order. And it's the same thing when in your personal relationships, when have you ever been able to resolve or come close to any compromise when you're screaming at each other? So I've had these moments where I'm like, just completely dumbfounded 
and in despair at the sort of things that I'm reading on social media. So it was very nice to get this reminder that, wait a minute, the things that I'm reading on social media are just the things that are being amplified by the algorithm and that there is this huge amount of people, the exhausted majority that are scrolling and being relatively silent and that you can't hear from, but they, their opinions are much more moderate. They're not as virulent. They're not as et cetera, as et cetera. So I thought that was a very, I, I just want to send that out there that yes, my friends, I encourage you to read this article, but that to me was a very good, healthy, salutary takeaway that if you find yourself scrolling through social media and being despairing at the sort of polarized opinions that you're reading about, just remember that there's a huge spectrum of opinion that you're not getting shown and that maybe they're, they're just silent and they're not actually speaking up. But maybe just kind of close off on this question, which I don't know if we've actually hit on. How can Web3 build the alternative to this epistemic operating system? When I think about the design of the like button, the share, the retweet, again, who knows what their intentions were, but it really does look like they were just going for the addictive dynamics. But I look at platforms like Arena. Are you familiar with Arena? I'm not off the top of my head. Okay. So Arena is like a tool for thinking. It's, it's similar to Rome Research, but it's quite different in that it's visually oriented, or you can save blocks of information, but they can be anything. They can be text, they can be links. But in the very beginning, the community that was gathering around this tool and really using it and super passionate about it tended to be like visually oriented designers, artists, things like that. The sort of dynamic of Arena is that you have these blocks and you can upload bits of information or images to them, and you can create channels, which are like groups of related blocks. And the social element is simply that if someone has decided to upload a blocks or channel that and made it public, then you can see, you can have a, a bird's eye view into what this person has been collecting. They're doing casual research. They're going along the internet. They're collecting images and quotes and links that mean something to them. And the interesting social aspect is that if they've made the channel public and you can see it, you're able to add to their channel. And the, the second sort of social aspect is that you can go in, you can see a block that Alex has added to his channel, and then you can add it, you can connect it to one of your existing channels. So I remember reading Charles Boskowski. He's the founder of Arena, and he was very intentional about not including a like, not including any sort of like feature. And he said, the reason why people describe Arena as healthy is because we went for the higher cognitive effort design. It takes no effort at all to like something, but it takes a huge cognitive effort to Think about a block of information. You're looking at an image, you're looking at a quote, you're looking at a link, and it takes a huge cognitive effort to try to connect it with something that exists within your world of thought. So it's no longer just liking something, but saying, I want to connect this. So clearly it fits in this context, but what context does it fit in my existing blocks and channels? And he said, it's precisely because of that high cognitive effort that the user is invested with agency and I was thinking to myself, it slows people down. It's ex it's exact opposite of what a like, a reshare, and a tweet does. It slows you down. It builds in those cooling mechanisms, as he was talking about, in terms of the framers being excellent social psychologists. It, it cultivates reflection. It cultivates pausing and reflection in an era when a lot of platforms are aiming for the knee-jerk reflex reaction. And I just want to say that I wanted to leave with a provocation. Trust me, if, if you have anything to say about this, I'd love to hear it. But my provocation is this, is aiming for growth always necessarily going to be opposed to uh, human flourishing? 
if you have a social media platform, if you have a Web3 social media platform and they have tokens and they have, so, oh, there's a DAO and there's decentralized governance, you have all the trappings of Web3, but they're aiming for growth. I was, remember I was telling you about Arena and Charles Braskowski was never aiming for growth. He was always like, this is a tool for thinking, a tool for thinking. And I cannot do anything that will intrude upon this space for someone to actually develop their thinking. I can't have advertising. I can't have a business model that's projected on growth. So from the very beginning, his intentionality and his business model was set up in a very unique way. My provocation is, can you have a social media protocol that has all the trappings of Web3, but is aiming for growth, can that ever truly build the sort of epistemic operating system that we, I think, dearly need, as you put it yesterday, an epistemic operating system that helps logic to come back to the forefront versus emotion? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about slowing people down, because I think in that same article, it was talking about how the founding fathers knew the same thing. That was a trapping of democracy, where you kind of have the rule of the mob, the mob gets hot and makes these rash decisions. There's countless amount of examples of that in ancient Greece and ancient Athens, ancient Athens, I should say. So this is another reason why it's so important to study history, because this is not the first time we're dealing with this. Human beings have not evolved very much over the last couple thousand years, but our environment has. So it's super important to understand human nature and then say, okay, how can we design systems that help us thrive rather than tap into that survive brain, which is naturally going to resort to anger and fear primarily. I, I think there are other, maybe less creative ways to bring Web3 in where you can say volume, for example. We just talked about how the extremes are louder, probably post more. And I don't know about you, but I found myself devolving to, oh, if I hear something, if I hear a token, if I hear a network, if I hear an opinion enough, okay, now I'll start paying attention to it. And what I try to do at that point is not say, okay, I'm just assuming it's true, but I'm actually saying, all right, enough people are talking about this where I need to be thinking about this. That's not necessarily true. Just because a lot of people are talking about it doesn't yes. necessarily mean it's the thing you need to be, pay attention to. Because a lot of times you'll have bots that are constantly posting the same thing over and over and just social engineering and saying, we need more bots, more anonymous, just trash accounts being posted about this. So one thing you can introduce is saying, how can you uniquely identify people? Maybe how could you have a reputation score similar to how we have uh, weighted voting, right? The more strongly I feel about this opinion, the more I, I can weight my opinion towards this rather than it's just one person, one vote. That If you have the one person, one vote type of thing, that makes it so that any account, whether it was made today, three seconds ago, has zero followers, et cetera, et cetera has the same weight on people's opinions than an account that's been around for 10 years and has hundreds of thousands of followers and tons of tweets or whatever else. And it's up to you to decide, like, how do you weight that reputation? How do you make it very costly for people to post things that even then there's an implication where you have this kind of like social attacks where if even if someone posts something that has a, a lot of backing, a lot of evidence, if you get people emotionally charged, you could shut that down. And just even socially signaling things down is not necessarily an indication that this is not well-researched. So you have to somehow build in an incentive structure. I know this is a more centralized way of doing it, but in, in the academic realm, there's certain guidelines that you have to abide by to say, did you actually do your research? This is another thing that was talked about in the article. And it basically proves that you did your homework, 
you research this, there's a certain level of credibility to these arguments that you're making because you did your due diligence and you're raising that bar in, in order to make, allow someone to post an opinion rather than like you just said, it's very easy to comment. How can you make the barrier to actually putting your opinion out there a little bit higher? So it forces someone to put a lot more thought into it or slow down and cool down or put in barriers where you say I, you have to cite in some different way. This is how you can start to introduce little bits of it's requiring you to put logical thought in versus emotional thought. And now it's just this emotional tirade. And I don't necessarily have answers here, but that's maybe the approach that you should be taking is how do you reintroduce logic as the primary form of social currency versus emotional thinking and how strongly you feel about something? <laughs> it, it should be more of like, how well did is this thing researched? That should be more of a quantifiable, grounded in reality type of metric versus, oh, I feel strongly about this. Oh, great. It's probably something that has to do with you being angry or you being fearful. This is good stuff. I hope that the future creator of the Web3 social network mm -hmm. is listening because this is really good stuff. And in fact, what you just said reminded me of something. So there was a piece in this article, in Jonathan Haidt's article, where he was talking about proposed reforms. So one of them, he actually, I, I think her name was Frances Haugen. She was the Facebook whistleblower. So he was saying that she suggested a very simple change to the architecture of the program that you modify the share function on Facebook so that after any single piece of content has been shared twice, the third person that wants to share has to take the time to actually copy and paste the content into a new... So this just is a little not barrier. Just a little barrier. Yes, just a little barrier. It's, it's not censorship. It's completely content neutral, but it slows the spread of content that, uh, that otherwise might be... It's, you just imagine that it can be quite simple, but then there's something else that he proposes, and I think it would be a game changer. And you just reminded me by talking about your thoughts, your suggestions. He said the single biggest change to reduce the toxicity of the existing platforms would be user verification. And it's exactly like the idea that before you get a gun, you're, you're going to have to do training, you're going to have to get a license, and we're going to have to run a background check. Because it really is that weighty and existential right now, Alex. He described it as you need to be user verified as a human being so that you can get rid of the bots, just like what you're saying. Because the bots is an endemic, it's an endemic uh, problem. And there was, I think there was actually in this post, some information about how the Russians have been using social media to sow discord and disunity and suspicion as a way to destabilize the country. And my guess, I'm not unsure, but my guess is that the United States is also doing the same thing in other countries abroad. So something that would really solve this problem right off the hat is to have a user verification as a precondition for even getting on these social media platforms. And there was something that was actually just released, Alex, uh, I think earlier, uh, oh, it was actually February, called the PFPID. And it's a tool that anyone on the internet can use to verify their real identity. It's a soul-bound proof of identity locked to your Ethereum wallet and interoperable with Web3. So imagine that working as like the gateway, like you have to have this PFP ID to prove that you are a human being and you get your one account and just being in that one fell swoop, getting rid of bots, I think would make a huge impact. I'm also thinking... I'm trying to think of the Web3 equivalent here, but I'm also thinking back to gaming, right, of hackers. So you'll have games that have a disproportionate number of hackers to other games. And a lot of times it's in games where there's basically no cost to just making another account, downloading the same exact hack, and then going off and hacking. If you have some kind of barrier, whether it's a box cost, 
So if the box costs $20, if you're hacking and you get caught, well, in order for you to continue hacking, you have to buy another box copy or torrent it, which could be a, a way to get around that. But you have to introduce those costs to making a whole new account, whether it's a, a lengthy process or whatever else. If there's zero cost, zero barrier, it's there's no cost to just being a that type of person on, on social media and just you're just gaming the system or you're being that kind of emotional charged person. You're just flinging out a bunch of garbage. And even if you get uh, banned in the Web2 world or in the protocol world, if you're hitting certain metrics where it's just saying, this is obviously spam, you're going to get banned automatically based on the protocol. You have to have a cost there for someone getting set back up. Otherwise, you're just going to have rampant amounts. You're going to have bots being created. It has to be a cost. Wow. We didn't even barely touch this, but I think we're getting up on an hour and 30 minutes. So, but just quickly to bring it back around to Elon Musk, I think I've been very intrigued by this sort of tweet interaction between him and Jack Dorsey when they were talking about algorithms, decentralized algorithms that people on Twitter should be able to choose the algorithms that they want to sort of serve or operate behind the content that they're being shown. So I think this is, again, we don't know Elon's intentions, but this gives me hope that he, I hope, I really hope that he's doing this to to help advance free speech, but he has a lot on his plate right now. But anyway, I just wanted to call that out as something <laughs> that, was, that was quite intriguing. What is he going to do with Twitter? Is he going to try to shift it into the direction of decentralized algorithms? This would be an incredibly fascinating. But thank you, Alex. I always appreciate the jam session with you. Again, I, I really hope that there's someone out there now that's thinking about how we can yes. how we can put together the Web3, the decentralized Non-skeumorphic version of social, social non media. Yeah. Yes, yes. We're uh, rooting so, for you. <laughs> yes, we're rooting for you. Write us if you found anything uh, on the pod to be uh, inspiring. We're always open and happy to hear from our FF fam. Just remind you, friends, the Forefront Web3 Creator Residency, which Alex will drop in the show notes, we have an open call for the next two weeks. So I believe the open call period ends May 6th. So definitely click on that link, check it out, and we would love to have you apply if this is something that you're interested in. So with that, my friends, we bid you goodbye. Thank you so much for listening again, and we'll see you in two weeks. See you then. Bye-bye. Hey, fam. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.